You're listening to Inside the Village, where all news is local and no topic is off limits. So help me, Bob, it's bully in the alley. Welcome to Inside the Village, brought to you by True North Mortgage, where you'll get great advice and save a pile of cash online at truenorthmortgage.ca. I'm Scott Sexsmith, alongside Michael Friscalanti, Editor-in-Chief here at Village Media. And this is a special episode, actually the first of two. This is part one of our look back on the year that was 2022. Yeah, it's crazy to think that we're even going to look back on a show that it still feels like we started yesterday. A show that we didn't even know yeah. would get to where it's gotten. I think we need to talk about that too, right? I mean, this is, this is like you said, episode 20-something, right? 26, yeah. You know, and you look back, um, I came on board at Village in the beginning of the year, beginning of 2022, and uh, as I was getting my feet wet, I met you, and then someone threw out the idea that, you know, maybe we should do a podcast. And we were like, yeah, you know, it could work. You know, we didn't really know how we were going to do it, what the format was going to be. Uh, but we did some brainstorm. We talked about it and we did some trial runs. And, you know, I'm not, I'm going to be honest. It didn't, I didn't think it was going to go very well at the beginning. I thought no. it was going to, no. <laughs> let's be honest. If we ever aired some of the trials we did, <laughs> it was a dog's breakfast. Yeah, let's yeah. be. Yeah, not not to say that it's great yet, but <laughs> no, it's but marginally better. It's marginally, it's much better than, than what it was. I mean, it was, it, I was actually nervous after the first one because I thought, Man, if plus the, there was so much prep time, right? As you're yeah. preparing something, it's like launching a new website or something. Absolutely. Right? So you're putting a lot of legwork in. And, and I think the other thing to point out too is, you know, you talk about evolution and just like a lot of things that we do here at Village, the way it starts out isn't necessarily the way that it ends up. Yeah. And you talk about the prep work and, and particularly you, you put the prep work in because, you know, you're the guy that's connected and, and the one with, you know, countless years of, of journalism experience. But we started with three interview segments yes. per show. Yeah. Plus all the wraparounds and the editing and the work part. Yes. Of course, Derek Turner, our uh, yes. uh, EP or so that's a showbiz term, <laughs> executive producer of Inside the Village. It's a lot of work it and it just became work. overwhelming. Yeah, but it's a great point you make about Village being a place where we try a lot of things. That's something I have enjoyed a lot about being here is that it is a place where we throw stuff at the wall and we see what sticks. A lot of places, not just in journalism, but in every industry, some places are afraid to try things and they're, they're used to staying in the status quo. So I did appreciate that we gave that a shot. And you're right. The original idea was let's have three – interviews on each weekly show. We'll have like a sort of a hard news segment, sort of another segment, and then maybe a softer segment yeah. at the end. And man, it was like a full-time job just trying, trying to figure that out, which made you really respect the people who do that for a living. Right? And the people who do it every day. Every day. Yeah, every day, for sure. And and I remember thinking back, ah, this will be easy. I mean, first of all, Frisco's going to do the lion's share of the work, so <laughs> I'm just going to kick back and show up once a week and read some stuff. Yeah, and I, and that's funny because I was nervous the other way that I was going to say, okay, like I have zero broadcasting skills, so how is this going to sound professional and look for it? But sure enough. You do a great job of what you do. We have this, you know, the, the Derek does amazing at what his his role is. And then we also have someone put a great tune together and we have this, all this intro music and all of a sudden we seem sort of professional. Well, and, and you're missing a very key part to that, uh, what you bring to the table and and certainly your, your journalistic experience speaks volume. So uh, long story, even longer, it's it's worked out, touch yeah, wood, no, touch fake wood yeah. uh, to date. And when you look back at, at some of the stories that we've uh, we've covered, uh, this year, we've really run uh, the gamut from, you know, the opioid uh, crisis to politics and elections, 
certainly the economy and, and inflation. Uh, we've uh, we've run the gamut on on what we've done, and that's what struck me too as we started talking about doing a year in review. Is when you look back at the episodes, you think, oh yeah, we we interviewed that person, we tackled that issue, and, and there, there's quite a variety of things that we that we went after. And so I think the plan for us is to we're going to do an episode today and talk about some of the real serious stuff that we did and yep. some of the some of the 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 really important um, stories that we're telling. And then next week, maybe we'll do a little bit of a lighter side. Absolutely. Sounds like a great plan. And we'll kick it off when Inside the Village returns after this. From newsmakers to celebrities to other prominent guests, you'll find them all on Village Media's new interview series, Up Close and Personal. Join host Scott Sexsmith as he goes one-on-one with well-known Canadians to hear their story. Up Close and Personal. Look for it on your favourite Village Media website across Ontario. Welcome back to uh, part one of our year-ender here on Inside the Village with uh, Michael Friscolani, Editor-in-Chief at Village Media. I'm Scott Sexsmith. You know, we talk about doing uh, 26 episodes uh, to date, and I think it's only fair that we look back to where it all started on episode one in a story that I know resonated with both you and I, as it did with, you know, many people across the province, and that was the search for Katrina. Yeah, and when I look back on that story and that episode, it really was one of the most powerful ones we did. Um, just to refresh everyone's memory, Katrina Blagden was a former soldier, served in Afghanistan, she went missing under strange circumstances in where she was living in St. Catharines. And her family really rallied to try to get the word out, to try to find her. They were hanging posters in St. Catharines and Thorold and trying to get the word out as much as they could. What amazingly happened was on Facebook, this page called Trina's Army grew and grew and grew. Thousands of followers were there supporting the family, donating money, donating their time to search for her. And... Uh, that's what made the story so special. Is yeah. sadly there are people that go missing, and and, and there's it's not that kind. Of, but the public support of people that came forward to try to help, to try to help find Trina was really powerful, really amazing. And we invited uh, her sister Kelly Blagden and her mother Bonnie Lates to come on the show and talk um, about Trina, the type of person she was, and sort of the search. And uh, what really sticks out is, is is some of the things that Kelly told us. Kelly, sometimes we can't go into certain details, like you said. There's an active police investigation. It's difficult to point fingers. But are there people out there who aren't saying everything they know about what happened? 100%. Like 150%. There are people that could put an end to this pain, this part of the pain, so easily. And I know that. We know that. And that, like, not only to make a decision to, to... take someone away from their their lives but to prolong the suffering to not give that person the dignity they deserve mm-hmm. sadly just a couple of weeks after that interview ran we got the news like everyone else that uh, katrina's body had been found yeah. uh, after an autopsy the police announced that they did not suspect foul play um the family is continuing to look into what happened to her continuing to investigate it on their own um and the facebook page is still active and uh, we're following it as well. We've uh, covered a lot of uh, tragic stories and issues uh, over the past 26 episodes. Uh, and another one of those, uh, of course, that seems to touch you know far too many people uh, is the opioid uh, crisis. Absolutely. And it touches people in all communities, in all cities. And I have to say, you know, our teams and in, uh, in, in our cities that we cover 
have done a really great job in covering the opioid crisis. It's one of those difficult stories, it's difficult things to, to talk about, but our reporters are covering stories about the numbers, about the victims, about the families left behind, because it's an issue we need to keep front and center. It's something that uh, that we can't let policymakers forget about. Right. And so we do cover that very closely, uh, and I know that for me, Scott, one of the people that really impacted me, we had on a guest, was Christine Naylor, whose yeah. son Ryan um, died of an overdose a few yep. years ago. Uh, and she's put all her energy to good, is the best way to put it. She is such an advocate for for decriminalization, for safe supply. Uh, and listening to her talk, you just wonder, because this isn't just a grieving mother who's talking about losing her son. This is someone who is super um, educated on the issue and what needs to be done in order to, to lower the number and to help people who are struggling with this addiction. So when you listen to her talk, you wonder, how can anybody – in, in power, anyone in politics say that she's not right. So I really, uh, that that conversation for me was one of the best we've had. And the numbers are, are shocking. I mean, if you look even the latest numbers from Ontario, there were, uh, the year that your son died in 2020 was at the time the worst year for toxic drug deaths. Uh, that's been since surpassed by 2021 statistics. 2,819 confirmed and probable opioid deaths in 2021, which is 15% higher than the 2,687 deaths in 2020. I worry, Christine, if we become numb to these numbers, we just hear them and say, oh, most people just turn the page. Absolutely. And so that's why I continue to share Ryan's story as as hard as it is to uh, keep reliving um, the trauma that we went through with trying to get Ryan help. I feel we have to humanize it because people just hear it. They just hear numbers and, and, and they are numb to the numbers, but those are not numbers. Those are real people. Those were people's sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, uncles, like best friends. And uh, their losses have a huge impact on families and communities. And uh, so this is this is a public health emergency. If we were losing this amount of people to any other um, you know, issue, there would be action on all levels of government. Uh, there's not because we value these lives less. We have a judgment and a stigma towards people that use drugs. And we think that it's, they, they cause us themselves. It's their fault. And we don't care about them. But we need to care about them because nobody is immune. And it could be your child, your grandchild, you know, next. That wasn't the only uh, piece of coverage, though, that we did on the uh, opioid uh, crisis. I know that uh, you and the editorial staff uh, ran a fantastic uh, big read uh, across the chain that really focused on the influence of Toronto street gangs and how they're moving into rural and northern Ontario. And you know what, Frisco, to me, that really opened up my eyes into how big of a problem this really is. Yeah, what's great about that story is it kind of connected a whole bunch of dots on cases we saw, you know, kind of pop up in the news, you know, in, in the Aurelia area and Sault Ste. Marie and Thunder Bay. And this idea that a lot of Toronto area street gangs have branched out like a good business would have branched out into smaller communities, you know, like Espinola, Ontario, like a little town right, right yeah. between Sudbury and Sault Ste. Marie. And, and so it really kind of was a, was a, was an eye opener for me too, even as, as that story came together, just about how many cases there were of like well-known Toronto street gangs, including guys who've been charged with gang activity in Toronto, uh, dealing drugs in a place like Espinola. Which is or on Manitoulin Island, which was just crazy, and uh, I enjoyed it. After we did that piece, uh, one of the well, one of the people interviewed that piece was Antonio Nicasso, who's one of like the, he's the world's leading organized crime expert, right? He is the guy to talk about organized crime. He was quoted in the piece, and he was kind enough to come on the show. And uh, again, he was one of my favorite guests. 
You know, we've seen this here in Ontario, all across in rural communities, northern communities, First Nations communities. We wrote a, a large article, one of our big reads recently, about how Toronto-based street gangs are really branching out into northern Ontario, rural Ontario. I mean, we see it at least once a week, Antonio. The police are putting out a press release where they've arrested somebody dealing large amounts of fentanyl, and they're from Toronto. They're from Scarborough. They're from Etobicoke. I, I mean, how, are you seeing more and more of this? What's going on here? Now, let's say that uh, we have more than 375 street gangs, mm-hmm. and and uh, at least that data uh, um, uh, released by the Criminal Intelligence Service of Canada in 2019, and those street gangs continue their involvement in high visibility crimes, and and, and there is an increase, of course. Uh, of uh, um, street gangs uh, or smaller criminal groups uh, in in uh, in a smaller community, and so it's not like uh, they abandon the, the larger city, but they move also in a smaller community. Yeah, you're right, Frisco. He was uh, he was one of my favorites as well, and and such an interesting, smart man to listen to. I could uh, I could sit and listen to him uh, yeah, me tell us stories uh, all day long. The uh, opioids uh, crisis, though, continues to be a question that politicians, frankly, at all levels, uh, need to step up and and start answering. And and it certainly was a, a very prominent issue in the uh, provincial election. For sure, we covered this, a lot of elections this year, right? We had a, yeah. the city the municipal elections were all over our sites it would do an excellent job of covering those and the provincial election was, was this year as well and uh, again something that our sites were built to do that we cover elections really well we're covering the candidates the big issues and then here on inside the village our idea was let's reach out to the, the leaders of all four parties and say hey we're going to give you a chance to come on our sh- come on our show you know pitch your ideas pitch your vision of the province to the to the people of inside the village, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right? So we reached out to Doug Ford. We reached out to um, uh, <laughs> Stephen Del Duca. Why do I forget? It? <laughs> He's I know such he, a memorable know, candidate. Yeah, I know he's yeah. not the leader anymore. Isn't he a mayor? He's a mayor. He's a mayor. He's, yeah, where is he the mayor? Isn't that terrible? That's, that's terrible. I don't remember. But anyway, we did reach out to him. It shows you I don't remember because he didn't come on the show. See? Right? That's what neither, happens. Neither did Doug Ford. Nope. But Andrea Horvath at the time, who was the NDP leader at the time, she did come on. And Mike Schreiner of the Greens came on. Yeah. And I just say they were some pretty fulsome conversations. I mean, they we, were. we spent a lot of time with these two leaders and, uh, you know, it was a stretch run of the of the the campaign, right? It was nearing the end when they came on the show, and both of them, you know, felt really strongly about how they were going to do and, and and how things were going to go, but ultimately didn't go their way. I still want to know how Schreiner negotiated getting green walls in his hotel room. <laughs> I know. Maybe we'll start with him, Mike. I think you mentioned before we got we got on the air that you're in Perry Sound, Muskoka, campaigning today for the local candidate there, and you're at a hotel. Is that a green wall behind you? Did you ask for that when you checked in? <laughs> I do. I do have a green wall behind me, and it was. Uh, I did not ask for the green wall, but certainly happy to have the green wall behind me. It's like and it's fate. We're going to paint Perry Sound Muskoka green. Yeah, I thought I, I thought you brought it with you for the for the interview. That'd be amazing. Uh, you know, Mike, you, you you don't live in a fantasy land. Obviously, you're 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 a straight shooter and an honest guy. You're the first to admit that you're not going to become the premier of Ontario on June second. But I'm wondering, what does victory look like for you and your party? What would what would be a celebration for you? I think increasing our seat count at Queen's Park um, and increasing our vote total across the province. You know, I, I tell people, like, I think I'm qualified to be the premier. And I would say coming out of the leaders debate, a lot of people are saying, we wish you were going to be the premier. <laughs> 
But uh, I also know there's a process that a new party has to go through. It's very similar to starting a business, or I've also started nonprofit organizations. You you have to build over time. And, and, you know, if you look at green parties in provinces across the country, much like the Ontario Greens, it's electing that first seat and then securing the second seat and then building from there. It still kills me now. Green hotel room walls is one thing, but to have plush velvet walls on your tour bus like Andrea Horvath did, that's something else. We definitely want to get back to healthcare. And you, you talk about hope. One of the issues I think has a lot of people feeling a little hopeless, a little helpless right now is the cost of living, right? Inflation is through the roof. Mm-hmm. People are seeing their prices at the grocery store and the gas pumps keep going up. I mean, what can an NDP government do to, to help a person who's struggling and standing at the grocery store saying, can I afford this today? Yeah, the, the choices uh, people are having to make are are just heartbreaking. The uh, you know we talked about hope a little bit, but the the, the fact that, that young people are giving up hope of ever owning their own homes that they're they're stuck in their parents' basements uh, much much longer yet again uh, into their thirties, and that's that's not good for anybody uh, for the for the young people or the parents for that matter. Uh, but but there's a couple of things. I mean, it's it's about um, it's about making sure that some things that we can have an impact on are made more affordable. So things like housing, things like rent. Uh, so bringing rent controls back, making sure uh, that we're taking speculation out of the market and helping young people to afford their first home with help with the down payment, but also making sure that those first homes are actually available uh, so that we have those starter homes, those middle missing home, uh, missing middle homes rather, uh, that help young people to get their foot in the door. Uh, but but it's also about a- a- acknowledging that people are paying out of pocket for dental care. They're paying out of pocket for prescription drugs. They're paying out of pocket for mental health care. And I I just want to take one minute to say at the press conference I had this morning, yet another mom approached me about the crisis in mental health with young people particularly, but literally, and this is, this is the absolute uh, fact. Every single time I'm out in the community doing a press conference, somebody from the neighborhood comes over and starts a conversation about mental health. So mental health, and prescription drugs need to be paid for through your OHIP card. They need to be part of our public health care system. Uh, that not only takes a big burden off of people's pocketbook, uh, but it also makes sure that people can be uh, as well as possible, can stay healthy, don't have to go to emergency or to, to see a doctor uh, when they're not well because we're helping them to stay well. I found both uh, Mike and, and Andrea to be good, you know, salt-of-the-earth uh, people, uh, great discussions. Now, interior design aside, we we should point out that uh, Andrea uh, subsequently uh, left the post as the leader of the NDP party and is now the mayor of your former uh, stomping grounds, yeah, the mayor. city of Hamilton. Yeah, Mayor of the Hammer, that's right, she is. And we should also point out, too, that Mike, as optimistic as he was that the Greens were going to win some seats election, again, he was the only Green that, that did win a seat. And while we were gone, I did Google <laughs> I did Google Stephen Del Duca, and just breaking news, he's the mayor of Vaughn. Any complaints can be sent to michael at villagemedia.ca. <laughs> All right, uh, our year-ender continues uh, some great stuff um, in the first segment, and... Uh, Uh, Some really interesting stories to come in uh, segment two, and we'll dive into it right after this. When Inside the Village returns, brought to you by True North Mortgage, where you'll get great advice and save a pile of cash. Find them online at truenorthmortgage.ca. We're back after this. She had my heart, oh, very nearly. For the latest in in-depth features and enterprise journalism from your local writers at Village Media, be sure to check out The Big Read. The Big Read. It's the full story behind the headlines. 
Look for the big read on your favorite Village Media website across Ontario. Bob, it's bully in the alley. Welcome back to Inside the Village, our year-ender part one. I'm Scott Sexsmith with Michael Friscalanti, our editor-in-chief here at Village Media. All right, September 8th, 2022, 96-year-old Queen Elizabeth II passes away. Yeah. And remember, when you think of like big breaking news, that's right, that's right up there, right? That's, yeah. that's a global story. and. It was typical. We were in the newsroom uh, that day, and and you there was I think I don't know all the details. I don't remember, but the word was that, you know, that the fan the royal family had been summoned to where she was. Yes, there was this sense that things were bad, and every royal expert in the world was talking about how significant this was. And then before you know it, the BBC is announcing that she had died. Yeah, and I can't recall the, uh, the 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 chain of events, but I think it's the Archbishop of Canterbury that sent sent out that first note. And that's kind of what triggered, you know, all of the speculation that it was imminent. Uh, and and our good friend uh, Patricia Treble, who uh, you worked with for many years, uh, kind of held our hands and, and walked us through everything. Which was great because we thought, okay, who can we bring on to talk about this? And and, and Patricia and I were, were both reporters at McLean's for a long time. And on the, I think I would, it's fair to say on the side, she was a royal watcher. She did it. She did, wrote a lot of royal stories for us, but you know, she did other things besides cover the royals. But it was really. Um, something that she cared deeply about and followed closely. And since she's left McLean, she's been quite the royal watcher. And she has, her, you know, a lot of people look to her for for, for the uh, guidance on what's going on. So we had her come on the show and it was, it was kind of a, uh, uh, you know, a get to see you again kind of episode. But, yeah. but she really filled us in on some interesting things that I had no idea about. Uh, Patricia, uh, certainly the royal family, no stranger to uh, controversy uh, over the years. One of my my takeaways from from watching all of this over the last couple of weeks, and, and Frisco and I have certainly chatted about it, is the relationship between William and Harry, and I wonder if their grandmother's death is going to help them mend those broken fences. What's your take on that? I don't know that we're going to see that. Um, I, I think it's going to take time. Um, certainly from everything we saw, um, you know, leading up to the funeral and the day of the funeral, um, there isn't really very much relationship at all. Um, so I think we're going to see what's going to happen. I mean, obviously, William is now heir to the throne. He's now first in line. Um, and over time, Harry's going to be slipping down. Um, it is, we're going to have to, we're going to have to find out. I mean, the big kind of, the sort of Damocles kind of looming over everyone is that he has a book coming out. He has his memoirs coming out. The nobody really knows exactly when it's coming. The theory is that it's coming in November. Is he going to write another chapter because of the Queen's death? We don't know. But the assumption is, is it is that his father, who is now King Charles III, um, does not come off well in this book. And the assumption is that William does not come off well. Um, so, you know, if he's talking about all these intimate details within the royal family, which are never normally talked about, um, I don't know how much of a relationship we're going to have in the near future. I think the hope is that over time, everything everything will slowly fade. Certainly, the king has made it clear um, that he wants you know he wants Harry and his family within their lives. Um, he's close to both his sons, and so this must be this must be painful. Such a tragic uh, story, the death of uh, Queen Elizabeth II and the impact that it had worldwide. But when you think about breaking news, one of the biggest breaking news story that we covered uh, on more than one occasion is that of the economy. Yeah, that's the, in my mind, that's the story of the year, right? The, in, the soaring inflation and the cost of living going through the roof. That's the story that impacts the average person, everybody. 
We all go to the grocery store. We've all seen the, co- the, the cost of groceries go through the roof. And, and we're all struggling to think, okay, how long is this going to last? What's my grocery going to bill, bill, bill be next year? Um, and what I've enjoyed about this show is we brought on a lot of people who understand these issues. We've had multiple economists come on the show and talk to us about various aspects of inflation and the interest rates and, and uh, what's, what's ahead for the economy. Um, and one of them uh, specifically came on to talk about the grocery store. Yeah, he did. And, and it's only fair that I introduce him because if you'll recall, when we taped the segment, I could not get this gentleman's name correct out of my mouth <laughs> to save my <laughs> what, life. What was great about it too is he was getting a kick out of it. Mike loved that you could not get his name right. I, I think he, he got more fun out of it than, than and, you or I did. And let's point out too that Mike himself is a podcaster, right? And yeah. so he has his, his, I don't know if that was his office or his home office. We had it all set up. He looked better than us. His studio Sounded great. better than us. Yeah. Looked better than oh, us. Definitely looked better. And, and mocked the hell out of us yeah, for a did. couple minutes. It was great. <laughs> so here by popular demand, I'm going to try and get this right, is Professor Mike Von Massau. The, uh, the price of food has been going up at a faster pace than the overall uh, rate of inflation for about 10 months now. Is, is there an end in sight or is this the new normal? Well, I'm not sure it's the new normal. Like I don't think we're going to see 10% increases in prices forever. But I do think that uh, we're, we're likely to see price increases continue for the next few months for a variety of reasons. Low Canadian dollar, ongoing war in Ukraine, uh, going to winter uh, and starting to get produce from the southern U.S. where it's very dry. So I, I hate to be sort of Debbie Downer here, but uh, I, I'm not that optimistic uh, in the short run about relief. Mm-hmm. You mentioned some of those those reasons, but can we speak to that? I mean, the average person is in the grocery aisle with their cart and some of the prices are astronomical, right? When you think, holy Crazy. cow, what I paid for, you know, chicken, for example, two years ago go. Yeah. It's gone through the roof. What are some of the reasons that you, you would you say to a person who asked you, Professor, why this is happening? Well, it's easy to blame the retailer, right? Because mm-hmm. that's who we're giving our money to. Mm-hmm. But the, the truth is that we're the, the war in Ukraine uh, has limited the export of wheat and vegetable oil, or at least oil seeds from the Ukraine, which has raised the global price of, uh, of those products. So we're seeing vegetable oils, bakery products go up. It's also uh, seen uh, fuel prices go up and almost all of our food gets shipped on trucks. So that I- impacts across the board. We've seen uh, weather events last year. Western Canada was very dry. This year, most of the Midwest of the U.S. was very dry. Uh, and so there are uh, there are a variety of things, sort of a perfect storm of impacts all happening at the same time, which is making them making this worse than usual. What was great about Mike, too, is that he can explain things to us in ways. I mean, this is a, this guy's an economist. He understands a lot of things that maybe you and I don't, but he can explain it to people in a way that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think he's a guy we're going to have on again because yeah. the, this is certainly not a story that's going to end. Um, another great guest who had a lot to say and really helped our readers understand things was uh, Tim Hudak, former conservative leader in Ontario, who is uh, now the president of the Ontario Real Estate Association. And uh, we had him come on to talk all about the up and down prices of real estate and where we're headed. And uh, it was a pretty funny conversation, but really informative. It certainly was. And if I recall, I think we focused on a particular property in the city of Guelph. What happens is people focus on those viral stories they see, right? I mean, there's one that came out of Guelph this week. There was a, a house listed. And if you look at the photos, it looked like it was a, a crime scene in there, just a total dilapidated place. It had th- it was listed for $643,000. It had 32 offers and sold for $117,000 
over the asking price. Wow. We just looked at the photos a couple minutes ago. And it's Crazy. just it's just wild. I mean, this is the the, the bottom que- the question again. But when you see when young people see that, how can they feel like they have ever have a chance of getting into this market? I totally get it. I mean, <clears throat> I wasn't after that house. <laughs> uh, you know what? My wife Debbie and I were like many of your your viewers and listeners. We would put an offer in, and we think about the house. We talk about where the crib's going to go. You know, kids playing in the backyard, and then you end up on the losing end. A week or two later, you do the same thing and end up losing again. Like I totally get that that buyer frustration, and, and we do have an opportunity now because the provincial election campaign is is coming up. And I have no doubt that if you're in, you know, Simcoe or or the the Sioux or in Niagara, where I'm from, homeownership and housing costs are going to be a top three issue. Mm-hmm. So I encourage folks that are part of this watching on the village should go out and talk to their candidates of all political parties. Say, what are you going to do to help my son or daughter or me and my wife, right, have a chance to own a home that we can afford? Always time well spent uh, with uh, Tim Hudak, the uh, former finance minister of the province and uh, leader of the uh, PC party uh, that you alluded to. And I think uh, certainly going to be a return guest to Inside the Village. He's welcome here anytime. I think so. Real estate's definitely a story that everyone's talking about. The issue of affordable housing, especially with Doug Ford's plans now to 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 make it easier for development, to get to put targets on the on how many houses we build in each community, the issue of the green belt. And, you know, when I think of all, all these issues, these are issues that our sites cover day in and day out. The issue of housing, rental costs, affordable housing. These are the issues that people in our communities are talking about, that they're concerned about, that, that, that we cover very closely, that we're asking difficult questions about. And, you know, I, I think I, I sound like a broken record a lot. Scott, I say the same thing on this show mm-hmm. a lot about local journalism, but I think it's important to hammer home that idea of that we are in these communities. Our journalists live in these communities and we cover our hometowns where we live, yeah. right? And so we understand the struggle of someone trying to figure out how the heck do I afford a house in my home when the prices have skyrocketed or they're concerned about the development of the green belt in their community, which is something that's on everyone's mind right now. So when I, when I think about the work we do, uh, the local journalism we do, that's where I feel like our biggest benefit is, is that we're there living in those communities. So we have the same concerns, the same questions, right? And I feel that way too when we have the tragic stories break in our communities, which we've seen a lot, which we see a lot. And we, we saw a lot this year. We saw in Barry those six young people tragically killed in a car crash. Yeah, yeah. And when I think of that tragic story, I can't help but think how proud I am of the journalism we did on that. I mean, that is what we're supposed to do. We covered the story about what happened, but we also wrote beautiful stories about the victims in that case. And I think about, you know, the national media showed up to Barry for that for that story, but I still don't believe that they actually told the beautiful stories of these people and who they were, right? And then I think of the other tragic story in that community and in the Simcoe County that we covered this year, which is the shooting of the shooting death of two self Simcoe police officers. Yeah, um, a story you know well. Yeah, uh, constables uh, Devin Northrup and Morgan Russell, and you talk about and and you're right. You 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 amplify and and every week sit in the studio and and praise the work of of your editorial team and staff, and and rightfully so. It's in these tragic times and moments where the staff really shines. And I think, and then again, it's not because I want to say that, oh, look at us, we're doing amazing work. I do think we're doing amazing work. But when it's when those stories break, people in those communities have to know, well, where can I turn for some accurate information, some good information, some truthful information? Well, they turn to Barrie today if it's in Barrie, or they turn to Innisfil today if it's in Innisfil, because 
they know that that's a, a, a you know, I, I hate to use the word, but it's a beacon of reliable information, right? So when I think about those two officers, what a tragic story that was and that shooting, how it unfolded and that as the news trickled out over the next few days, um, I just think of we did a service. We did our service as, as a local journalism site because we told we, – we showed people – what, we we showed the the accurate information, right? And we told the stories of those gentlemen, and I'm proud of that work that we did. Absolutely. And the day that it did happen, uh, we were fortunate enough to spend some time with Peter Leon, who is the uh, comms director uh, for the Barrie Police Service, and he kind of walked us through uh, the day's events. Uh, you're a retired OPP officer yourself, a longtime uh, police officer. Now you are a civilian employee with the Barrie Police Services. You work in the communications department, so you deal with people like us. You deal with reporters a lot of times who give you a call. Um, maybe we can start from the beginning, uh, Peter. How did you first hear of this incident when it when it unfolded on Tuesday night? Well, I was I was at home. Uh, I was off duty, and uh, you know we we carry our phones with us uh, wherever we go. And uh, I received an email message from one of our media outlets here in the Barrie area, uh, following up on some information that they had heard. Now, unfortunately, there was a great deal of misinformation that was taking place at the time. Uh, things were starting to unfold and information was initially received that it was uh, and the email I got was that our officers were involved from the Barry Police Service. Mm -hmm. Uh, I very quickly um, started to make some phone inquiries to find out the validity of the the inquiry and it was uh, a short time later that I was able to confirm that we were providing assistance at that time to members of the South Simple Police Service who had just been involved in a very, very serious incident in their area. In fact, we had officers on scene within uh, nine to 10 minutes, from what I understand, of that call for assistance going out. What was uh, what I really appreciated about our conversation with Peter, too, is that he's a guy who spent 35 years in uniform as a police officer. He's now a civilian employee doing uh, media work for the Barry Police, but he spent 35 years in uniform. So we asked him how much that weighs on you in the back of your mind. We all know police officers. We have friends and family who are police officers, and they know they go to calls. And this was, quote, unquote, what we think is a routine call, right, that you're showing up to a door. There's been a phone call. Someone's called 911. You're going to this house, something police officers across the province do every day. And how much it actually weighs on you? Do you go to work every day thinking, okay, you know what, I might hit a da- I might go to a dangerous call and not know it? Or is it something you're able to block out? It's easy for the public to say, well, this was a routine call. Police officers get called to houses all the time. They get called to scenes all shift long. That's what you do for a living. And I'm just wondering if you can help people understand as someone who wore the uniform for a long, long time, how much that weighs on you. Because every time you get a call, every time you go to serve a member of the community at their house or at a scene, it could turn violent like this. It doesn't happen often. It doesn't happen every time, but it can. Can you speak to that? Is that something that even after all those years you were as a police officer, that it weighed on you every day? Absolutely. I think first and foremost, I think that the public has to understand that there is no such thing as a routine call. Every call is unique in its own way, whether it's a response for a theft of a bicycle, a break and enter, um, whether you're responding to a person who has been a victim of an assault or a more serious crime, such as having to go and knock on somebody's door to, to do a death notification. Uh, these are all types of calls that are unique, and you have to treat each and every call independently of any other call that you've ever responded to. I think the, uh, the thing that people need to realize is nine times out of ten, 
we probably don't know the person who we're responding to that residence for unless we've had uh, dealings with them in the past. I think that, uh, you know, we're very fortunate in law enforcement that uh, our call takers and dispatchers uh, are relaying very valuable information to us as we're responding to these calls so that if there has been previous calls for service that we know or have a bit of an idea what we may be walking into. Uh, but like I say, the majority of the time, um, these are individuals who are reaching out for assistance and we don't know who they are. Um, it makes it difficult. And I know I, I've heard the term routine call for service uh, many, many times. And that's something as a communications person and somebody that has been dealing in corporate communications for, for many years, I try to correct because in policing, there is no such thing as a routine call. That next call could be a very, very serious occurrence. And certainly that's what we saw last Tuesday evening. Another story that was prominent uh, in the headlines uh, this past year was that of residential schools. Yeah, it's a story that um, we've talked a lot about actually here on Inside the Village. And it's a yeah. story that is, in a lot of ways, um, Canadians are coming to grips with their history, right? They, I think it's something that they just weren't very aware of. They didn't understand um, what, resident, what residential schools are. And they didn't even understand that we did a massive commission to to get to the truth of what happened at residential schools. And the report was released a few years ago, kind of arrived without much attention paid to, to be honest. And then we had the discovery of what appeared to be unmarked graves at some of these residential schools. And it really was a, a defining moment, I think, as a lot of people were like, whoa, wait a minute, what happened? At, what happened at these schools? And so it's, it's a conversation we're having more and more. I think of the great story uh, we had run across the chain, another big read, uh, this one by James Hopkins about finding Emma and it was right. piecing together the search for a residential school victim who never came home a hundred years ago. Yeah. Her family still didn't know what happened to her. And so a relative was trying to piece together the story. So James kind of takes us on the journey of how she pieced it together and the people she met along the way. And it's just, it's one small snippet, one small piece of that history, right? But these are important stories to tell. And in advance of National Truth and Reconciliation Day in September, we wanted to have somebody on the show who could really just talk to us about what that experience was like, like someone who actually lived in a residential mm -hmm. school, who grew up in a residential school. And uh, we we invited Mike Kagachi, who uh, lives in Sault Ste. Marie, spent his whole childhood in a residential school, yep. right? Really institutionalized. And I don't know about you, Scott, but for me, uh, we've had a lot of interviews that really touched me that, you know, really were, were emotional in some ways. But this one, I don't know if we topped it with this one. With uh, September 30th being the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, uh, no better guest uh, than uh, Mike to uh, join us on ITV this week, Frisco. We really appreciate you taking all the time, Mike. Uh, these are the kind of conversations we think we need to be having right now. Uh, we should have been having them a long time ago, but we appreciate the chance to have it now. Mike, I guess want to begin, I think you were in the residential school system. You've spoken a lot over your, over your life about that system. You went to three different residential schools, I believe, from the age of three, three. three to the age of 17. Yeah, until I was, uh, I went in there when I was 14, uh, four. Mm -hmm. and I, they asked me to leave when I was seven. <laughs> <laughs> just reading that, I shouldn't laugh, Mike, because just reading that is, is shocking, really, that someone could be in that well, system that long. Yeah, it, it, during that time, those were your formidable years as a child. And, there, and I didn't realize, really, until later on in my life, uh, you know, I had a better life when it goes back at, at my own history. You know, I, I came out of those residences, schools are broken, 
and having no identity and I took up drinking, I got into drugs, and I had a very difficult life for the first 20-some years of my life, mm -hmm. from the time I was 17 until I was 41 or 42, and that's when I stopped drinking. And I've been sober now for 41 years mm -hmm. and clean. And it wasn't after that until I uh, things started to make some, uh, some sense in, in who I was. I didn't know who I am. Mm -hmm. I'd ask myself sometimes, who the hell am I? Who am I? I'd look in the mirror and I didn't know who I was. You see, you, you get your identity from your family. And I had no family. I came back home from residential school. My mother didn't know who I was, my older brother and I. Mike, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you can even put into words for us and for our audience what it was like growing up uh, in residential schools. It's institutional. It's 100% institutional. I was just talking about that over the last couple of days. You go back to that little boy at four years old. You, the first thing that, when I walked into that building, the first thing that caught my attention was the electric, the electric lights. I come from a home, we had no electricity. Mm -hmm. We had coil or lamps or, or, or candles. And I couldn't get over the brightness of it. But that would later play on me because I'd be sitting in a mall someday and I'd get a flashback and I'd get overcome. Mm -hmm. I'd go back to that little boy again. Mm -hmm. But there's no one fending for you. You're on your own. You're basically all by yourself. My older brother would kind of look after me a little bit. But yeah, if somebody do something wrong, you've got nobody to protect you. So you learn at a very, very young age and how to adapt to the system to protect yourself. And you, and you see all around you, you see children getting beat, you see children being molested, and, and you, you learn to stay away from that and how to avoid it, and, and all the all the short the shortcuts and all the quick ways of, of avoiding it, because you're you're basically fending for yourself. And and I have never had a chance during those twelve and a half years to develop this persona that I would find later on in my life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for me to find out who I was later on in my life, I, I, I'm still working on it today. Mm -hmm. I have a father of five children, six children I caught my, uh, my, my last marriage, and I wasn't much of a father to them because I didn't know how to father. Mm -hmm. I'm a better grandfather today than I was a father. Mm -hmm. And I had no one to teach me how to be a father. Mm -hmm. I said no, no one mothered me. So if you look back at the history of residential schools, and they went for 130-some years at 100 per school, and you, you run the social multiplier, we're a nation of people that grew up without mothers and fathers. You're absolutely correct. Uh, of all the stories that we've covered, and we've covered many uh, over the past 26 episodes, um, I think that one left the studio uh, very quiet. Uh, Mike left and it was just, uh, you, Derek and I sitting in here and, uh, for a couple of minutes, it was, uh, it was pretty quiet. And w what struck me too, is that you felt like there was hours more of conversation we could have had. Like he, if we could have sat here with him for seven hours, we could have kept talking about more and more details about what that was like. But I guess we can only hope that it's an opportunity for someone who may not understand. And I still have people ask me that all the time. Well, I don't, I don't understand. What, why are we talking so much about residential schools? You know, it's it's in the past. It's old news. Why are we talking about this? If you listen to that interview, it should open your eyes to what we're talking about. And so important that we keep the conversation going. Absolutely. And we're going to do uh, just that uh, as we put a wrap on uh, part one of Inside the Village. Uh, part two coming up next week. And Frisco and I will be back to uh, tee it up for you right after this. 
Reporters, editors, and journalists who go the extra mile to get the story and get it right. Go behind the scenes with those who cover the stories that matter most to you and your community. Look for it in the Village Features section of your favourite Village Media website across Ontario. Back to wrap on uh, part one of our two-part year-ender here on Inside the Village. 26 episodes deep. Some said it couldn't be done. Yeah, it was it was me that <laughs> yeah. said it couldn't be done. I was going to say, you may have been one of them. <laughs> I we was both it. may have been uh, one of them and guilty of that. But uh, here we are. Um, it's been uh, an incredible learning curve, um, a hell of a lot of fun. What stands out to you? It's definitely been a lot of fun. Yeah, sometimes I think people think we're actually working when down here in the basement. <laughs> we, we sometimes get lost down here for a long time. But, you know, I agree it's evolved a lot. We've changed a lot. The formats changed, those kind of things. But for me, what I'm most proud of is the mission stayed the same. The mission of the podcast was to highlight the fact that we're doing great local journalism across our markets every day and sort of bring some of those stories to people who may not have known about them because they don't live in those markets. Right. And at the same time, explain to people why local journalism matters, why having robust, strong local journalism is such a key part of being informed, a key to our democracy. It's just so important to have a place for reliable information in your community, and we're it. And I, I'm going to say that flat out, we're it. And so we wanted to do that. And at the same time, we also wanted to say, hey, there might be a big issue that's impacting people all over the province. So we want to have those conversations, whether it's about affordable housing, whether it's about the opioid crisis, whether it's about uh, you know the, even the queen passing away has right. some relevance to people. Everyone has a good queen story. So we want to have those kind of conversations, and I've really enjoyed those. Uh, there's just been some guests that we kind of shot for the stars. So let's see if we can get this person to come on and talk. And they came on to chat with us, and they've just been wonderful conversations. And as much as we've covered uh, the hard-hitting side of journalism, uh, we also covered the lighter side mm -hmm. of journalism, and that will be the uh, topic of uh, part two next week. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be fun. Any uh, any teases? Should we give anything uh, away? Or Well, I got the, <laughs> the teases. It's actually pretty funny, some of this stuff. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, that's that's what makes journalism bearable in a lot of ways, right? Is we cover these serious stories about death and destruction and, and, and prices going through the roof and I can't find a place to live. But then sometimes we'll have Brittle Star come on the show and talk about something and you just think, okay, maybe the world's going to be okay. Let's hope so. All right. That's uh, a wrap on uh, part one of our uh, two-part year-ender here on uh, Inside the Village. You can find us at insidethevillage.ca, wherever you get your favorite podcast, and of course, across the Village Media Network. We're back next week with part two for Michael Friscalanti, Editor-in-Chief, Derek Turner, our Executive Producer. I'm Scott Sexsmith. We'll talk to you next Wednesday. You've been listening to Inside the Village. Fresco and Scott's wardrobe, provided in part by Moore's Sault Ste. Marie.